Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. I would ask uh, tonight for some prayers for a young girl, Ariana, if you could keep her in her prayers. She's five years old, uh, inoperable cancer. I guess they're sending her home, and uh, the parents are going to and family spend as much time as they can with her. So please keep her in your prayers. Again, her name is Ariana. Uh, very difficult situation, and uh, I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers and uh, that she be at peace. They're asking for and, and not in a lot of pain in the family have as much joy as they can here uh, with the time they have. Uh, and also pray for a miracle. With our Lord, you, you never know. Anyway, the number here is 515-604-9344. If you'd like to join the show and punch in the access code of 914-121. Okay. We are talking about St. Paul last week a little bit and his impact uh, on our Christian lives and Christianity in general, and I ended up with Thessalonians. I'd like to continue that tonight uh, with the second letter of Thessalonians. And this is an interesting letter because the people in Thessalonica, remember from last week's show, they thought that the return of Jesus was imminent, that he was coming back quite soon. So much so that some people abandoned their jobs. They didn't feel they had to work anymore. What was the point? Because the Lord's coming. So why bother earning a living? And they claimed that they got this information, um, certainly from St. Paul. So, you know, this is valid. We're ready to go. You know, come on, Lord. Marantha, come, Lord Jesus. A cry we offer now. And... They were taking that to heart, obviously. But this is what actually happened. And Paul had to fire off a letter because the word got back to him that through a letter of his own that the parousia had already taken place, that Jesus had already come. And this was causing, obviously, a great deal of conflict in the community. Think about that now. If we had someone had came with authority and one that we trusted and said, oh, oh, no, Christ already came, you know. And what kind of consternation that would take place in our lives right now, waiting for the second coming as we do. So this was a big, big problem. And Paul now, when we look at the first letter of Thessalonians and we see that with his eschatology, and what that means is, when you talk about things that are uh, with eschatology, it's the end times. So these have to do, like we know them, with the death, judgment, heaven, and hell, and the separation of the sheep and goats, and the resurrection of the body and the soul on the last day. And these have to do with the end times. So, again, they thought it was going to be right around the corner. Paul expected to be alive. Uh, when Christ returned, to take him up into the clouds, as we explained last week, into the air to meet God. And to recap just a little, in the first letter to Thessalonians, they were concerned because their loved ones were dying off before the coming of Christ. And they were concerned about that, and Paul wrote that letter 
to take away their fear and explain to them what was happening. But here he has to counter kind of a way of his own type of, of teaching because now there's a claim, as I mentioned, made that Christ has already come. It's past them. Of course, this wasn't true. And of course, this wasn't true. So Paul now develops a, a theology led by the Spirit of what they called the lawless one, where there would be, in essence, signs before the end. So this is something different than 1 Thessalonians, where all of a sudden, bang, Christ appears, the wrath of God comes, and the final battle is won and over. But now there will be some signs, and one is a apostasy. And what does that mean? Rejection of faith. So Paul tells the Thessalonians in the second letter, well, before this happens, there has to be a rejection of the faith, of the true faith in Jesus Christ, one that we are preaching through the gospel. And these are times, you know, our church teaches that we also have to look for. And we'll talk about this in a, in a few moments, but to get back to Thessalonians, so there has to be a rejection of the faith, an apostasy, and then in a, the lawless one, who Paul tells the Thessalonians is here. He's here with us now, in your, your midst. And what he's doing is he is opposing God and misleading the believers. So Paul tells them that the lawless one will be active until the end when God triumphs over him, the lawless one, and the lawless one's followers. And then, these are the signs, that then you can begin to believe that Jesus' second coming is in fact going to happen. But until that happens, he's telling them, look, until this happens, there hasn't been the second coming. So be at ease here. He has not come and left. Because these things have to follow. They have to take place before he comes again. So be at ease. So he's calming their fears. Because again, the church was, the community was building up. It was very fragile. It wouldn't take much to dissolve it. There was enormous pressure on those Thessalonians from outside influences as well as their own family system of worshiping idols and get rid of this new faith, which frankly they probably thought these people were crazy for adopting in this Christ Jesus. But Paul is reassuring them, as he did in the first letters, that it has not happened. So keep an eye on the signs of the times. And when these things happen, then you'll have an inkling what is to transpire. And with that, he also tells them that, you know, you guys are supposed to be living a Christian life down there. You know not the hour, nor the day, and you're supposed to be living a Christ-centered life, a Christian life, countercultural in the culture you live in. So stop the gossiping, because that was prevalent at that time, and he didn't want that. St. Paul did not want that for the Thessalonians. And again, he admonished them, you have to work to eat. If you don't work to eat, you are not going to eat. It's as simple as that. So don't use this as an excuse to glean off others. Pick up the load and carry your weight as is expected of you. 
So that briefly is what he writes to them in his, a letter of encouragement and a letter that contradicts what some people were saying about the second coming. And, of course, this theology is laid out in the end times that we see. Now, when we look, and we've got to be careful about reading too much into the signs of the end times, because if we look back in our human history, collectively, as a whole, there have been enormous, enormous times of great trial for human beings. And while we here in the 21st century have not lived back then, of course, I, I can take a pretty well-educated guess that when you looked at things like the Civil War or World War II or World War I, the Black Plague, that those people that lived at that time must have been convinced that this may have well been signs of the end times coming because there seemed to be so much evil, so much despair, so much heartache, and those signs, as we see, rejection of the faith, the apostasy. You know, during the Black Plague, for instance, many people questioned the existence of God at that time in the Middle Ages because they had not only seen so much devastation with this plague, but they saw God's own, his priests and his nuns, serving the people with the plague, getting the plague themselves, in fact, and dying. And there came a great question of how can this be? How can this be? How can this be happening? And you can see where it would be very easy to reject the faith at that point because of all that tremendous hardship and trial. I think for our own country during the Civil War with the devastation and the years which, you know, the Civil War mainly history focuses on that four-year period between 1861 and 1865, some of the years leading up to it and the causes. But the Reconstruction period after the war ended was a long, tumultuous time with much, much hardship for people. And that tends to kind of be cast aside. And again, you know, World War One, World War Two, World War One. Remember, was the war to end all wars, and of course, we didn't last too long for the war to end all wars. A worse one came up, prophesied by the Blessed Virgin Mary at Fatima. So, all during this time, we could see through epics of our civilization where people could have thought, rejected the faith, one of the signs, evil, carnage and so much destruction that, yes, Christ must be around the corner. And we see that in our own times today. We see all the news stories and the evil, threats of nuclear war, division. The lawless one certainly active, as he has been for, time, for uh, such a long, long period of time in our history. And it's easy when we look at our country, we look at Europe especially, Spain, Ireland, all these countries, especially France and Europe, that seem to have lost, rejected the faith of their ancestors. And it would be easy to go to that sign of the gospel being preached to all the nations with all the communications to every corner of the globe. You know, maybe that's one of the things people say that's fulfilled now. So we begin to speculate on these things and we can be 
caught up in these things and run away with these things. And actually, it can be unhealthy if you look at it, if you start to do as the Thessalonians did and not start to work, not start to do our daily duties. Because, well, you know, I think the end's coming pretty soon, so I don't really concern myself with planning for the kid's college or planning for retirement, things like that. You know, that's maybe an overreach, but some people can get caught up with this, and we can read so much into the the uh, eschatology of the time that we get off course, off kilter, and we want to be careful of that because we don't know the hour of the day, and that's one of the things that's so relevant today for us as well as it was back then when St. Paul was writing the letters to the Thessalonians that we've got, we don't know the hour or the day when Christ will come. And we need to be vigilant, which means we need to try to live out our Christian walk the best we can. You know, we are sinners. We're going to stumble and fall. It seems a lot of times we take a step forward, two steps back. But the key is to keep trying and to try living that Christian life and, and being countercultural, not being absorbed and letting the culture dictate to us what our faith and our uh, belief should be but what Christ said it is, what we have down from the Gospels, and try to live that out the best we can. Now, with that, as he tells the Thessalonians, with the expectation and hope that we will be with Christ and see our loved ones again. So we want to try to live that out and not get uh, too caught up in, in the end times uh, type of thinking. Because I've mentioned this before, that for most of us, before the end time happens, as it has for the people before us, their second coming, their particular judgment, already has taken place. They've died. So they've already stood in front of Christ with their particular judgment. Now, the church teaches on that, just to go over that uh, quickly, so we're clear on that. The particular judgment is your individual, my individual judgment when we die and how we lived our lives according to what Christ wanted, according to his will. So that's our particular judgment. And then our soul will be sent, as Catholics, to three places. Heaven, or hell, or purgatory, where we will be purified but of our sins, but guaranteed, and that's the consolation of purgatory. If we get to purgatory, we know we're going to heaven. We just don't know when, it, when our sins are clean, when we're purified, when we're totally sanctified, spotless without sin, is then we go. So that's our particular judgment. Now, the final judgment, the one we're talking about, and, and what Paul was mentioned at Thessalonians, is the final battle where Satan is finally put to rest, thrown into the depths of hell with his dominions, and that's it. No more to tempt mankind. That's the end of it as we know it. As we know, human history, that's all she wrote, so to say. And then your body, my body, will be resurrected in a glorified body with our soul. And the sheep and goats will be separated, and it will be a new creation in paradise forever. And the battle is over, and it's joy, if you're in heaven, complete happiness with God forever. So that's the final judgment, and that's the, the difference between the particular and final. So we want to really, I think, it behooves us to kind of concentrate 
live our lives and kind of focus on our our individual second coming, if you will, with Jesus, rather than get so caught up with the end times. It's interesting. I like to read about it, speculate. It's fascinating. But in reality, God's ways certainly aren't our ways, and we don't know. And sometimes, especially with tragedies and suffering, sometimes it's just best to let go, accept the mystery of Christ, and just trust in him. So that's enough for the Thessalonians. So we're going to jump over now to uh, another letter that we know Paul wrote for sure, and that's 1 Corinthians. And reading 1 Corinthians is very interesting because the problems that Paul encountered here, and we have to remember that Paul went um, and visited Corinth, which was a major town, beautiful town, um, certainly a cosmopolitan town. And when he went there, he stayed for 18 months, which was a long time. And he established a church there in Corinth. And when he received a letter from what the scholars believe was a, a woman called Chloe, who may have been, uh, in all actuality, one of the members of a household church, if not the head. And again, remember now, these churches aren't, like I've mentioned before, what we have today. They were the community that met to worship and praise and break that bread, and they met in people's houses as a group. They weren't the formal churches we certainly have today and the liturgical ceremonies we have today that built up over a period of time. Although it's very interesting to note that the church fathers from the year as early as 100 A.D., talked about the Eucharist, that breaking of the bread. So that's really, you know, fascinating because that's proof of our Eucharist that they believe that that is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, and they made that a priority in their liturgical celebrations. So different than ours, but, of course, the Spirit leads through the ages to get through the wisdom of that Spirit through us, to where we are and where we will continue to grow. And that's a great thing. Um, so Chloe sends uh, Paul a letter. And remember again that these letters were very important because the slave trade was uh, part of the mainstay of uh, that culture at the time. And matter of fact, without it, their economy would have went out the door. And Rome wouldn't have been what it was without slaves. And uh, so it was an accepted fact of life, however wrong it was. If you were conquered and you were on the losing end of the scheme, you became a slave. And it was something that was generational. If you were born a slave, your kids and family were probably going to stay that way. Although there were times where you could purchase your freedom. But nonetheless, you'll get off on that track to go back to what I wanted to mention. So because of that slave, the slaves, letters were an important part of communication at that time in the ancient days because because of the slaves and so many, they could have a, a, a system where they could deliver these letters. Even though it took a long period of time, when these letters got there, they wouldn't just be read and discarded. They were copied and, and they were learned and reread because this was a very important means of communication. So Chloe sends this letter to Paul. And remember, Paul's letters were sent 
to, except for Romans, to deal with these real-life issues and problems until he either got back there. So they were treated by Paul and the people he sent them to as if Paul was there personally speaking to them. That's how important the letters were and are in a way for us. Because as I've mentioned, not much changes. The face is technology changes, but human beings are human beings. And we still have those needs as they did years ago and as we will have in the future as we have now. So when he gets this letter from Chloe, she says, you've got to do something here. There, it's crazy. It's the, you wouldn't believe what's going on here, Paul. And we'll run down a little list here. Paul has to deal, one, with a very real threat that the church in Corinth, which he established, is going to be gone because they're in danger of losing it. Because as Chloe states... We've got some problems. We've got factions here. There's no unity that you talk in 1 Corinthians about. And why was that? Because in Corinthians, Paul has got to deal with the fact that the people that are being baptized are forming an allegiance with the individuals that are baptizing them. And this is the reason Paul writes about himself Peter, and Apollo in 1 Corinthians. Because he tells them, we can't have this here. We need to be unified. You can't be smug, and you can't be proud, and claiming, well, I was baptized by Paul, so therefore I have more authority, I have more importance than, look, he was just baptized by Peter, or, or this guy, Apollo. They don't even count. And to offset that, the people that were baptized by Peter and Apollo and whoever else were doing the same thing, claiming their baptism was more valid, they had more worth, and they were more important, important word, important than the other followers that were baptized by such and such. And that caused a division in the ranks. And that is, as we know, a house divided will fall. And Paul was very concerned about that. And he jumps their case because he tells them in his theology, and I've mentioned this before, Paul was a pastoral theologian, not just a scholarly one. He had to deal with these real situations, and he did magnificently. And he tells them, you don't understand. You are baptized, and you are baptized one with Christ. Not me, not Peter, not Apollo, but Christ. And that's where the unity is. You're all one. So don't be smug and don't be proud because you're all one, baptized in the Spirit, in Christ, forming that unity. And therefore, you need to be unified with each other and not have these divisions among you because that is not the Christian way. And we can see, and the Corinthians, as I mentioned, resemble a lot of things happening right now in our society. We look just, let's look at the Catholic Church here in our country and see the division we have here. Because some people may or may not like Pope Francis. Some people may or may not have liked John Paul or uh, Pope Benedict. And they don't like this priest. And we don't like this merger. 
and we don't like our new pastor, and we don't like this. So we're going to do this because we know better. And the other side does the same thing. Well, we love Pope Francis, and we love St. John Paul II, and we love Pope Benedict, and we love our new pastor. We didn't like the gold guy, so we're glad this happened. And you have this division. And that is what Paul is trying to tell us too. We need to unify as a church. And we need to come together. Now, people, we're sinners, we're weak, and we have this knack, and we all do, of being clannish. We all have it. We like to... And in a way, I guess there's nothing really wrong with being proud of, your, like my heritage being Polish, being proud of that and the customs and the history of Poland and, you know, what my ancestors brought to this country or yours if you're Italian or Irish or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But the fact of the matter is when we start to divide it, where we're smug and proud over all of them and we know better, and they should do it our way. And we shouldn't have to bend here. And they shouldn't have to bend this way. And you get into this trouble. And that's what we need to kind of clear up in our church today. We need to unify. There's a lot of things that are happening that are changing in society that the spirit has to, over a period of times with the culture changing and the times and technology changing, the spirit leads people through wisdom and discernment on where we're supposed to be. Some of the issues we deal with today like in vitro fertilization. They didn't even have that in St. Paul's time. They didn't have that. That wasn't even an issue. The, the just war that we have to worry about, say, with nuclear armament, they had wars back then. They didn't have to deal with the destruction of the entire world. Rome may have, quote, conquered the world, which they didn't, but they weren't going to destroy the world with sword, horseback, and spear. Now, we have a capability of doing, in my, who knows what we, would, we can do with nuclear weaponry. So you have the spirit leading you through these different epochs of mankind's civilization as it needs to be. And we have to trust in that. And while we may not be happy, and many long for the good old days, and many want the good old days gone, there's good things in all this for us to hold on to and to learn to and to grow together. And in those cliques now, especially with parishes that are closing and parishes that are being uh, combined, we need to, like the Gentiles and Jews, when the Jews who rejected the faith, the Gentiles accepted it, and they started to have more numbers than the Jews and became more powerful. And St. Paul had to remember, uh, to, excuse me, remind the Gentiles, hey, and the Jews, you guys have to get along with each other. There's no one better than the other. You both need each other and you both need to be unified because God chose the Jews. And through Christ the Messiah came this gospel that enables you Gentiles to be grafted in to get these blessings promised to Abraham and have this eternal destiny. So you guys can't be factioned off. You have to work together. Because he tells them in Ephesians, do you know what your job is, guys? 
It's to make manifold the wisdom of God throughout the university. That's the church mission. And he tells the Ephesians this. And we can take and use this to our own advantage that, yeah, in our own groups, let's say our parishes have been combined where you live. Two of them have been combined. You're not that happy with her. They're not happy with you. Rather than continue to have this divisiveness between the people now and they keep their ways and they're kind of offset and they, they don't want to approach each other and work together, we've got to break that barrier down. We've got to think about that old uh, Ephesians and we've got to see that we need, like the Gentiles and Jews had to work together to get this ball rolling and to accomplish great things in the mission of Christ and the body of his believers, we need to do the same thing. It's important that we do that. You know what? It means we all have to swallow our pride, and that's not easy. It's not easy for people because if you've been doing missionary work or uh, you've got uh, a lector at your church and you know, you're going to have to split the readings or something you've held on to there and you were in charge of it, and now you've got somebody that's going to help, maybe it's the choir, it's tough. It's tough, especially if you've had that all to yourself. But sometimes we have to let go, let others help, and we all grow this way. So there's a lesson there. Again, all this is relevant. That's why the Bible is such a living word for us today, because not much changes. We're undergoing the same problems. We've got factions now. Now, it, you know, even with some of the baptisms, some you know, qualify in other churches. Well, you know, that baptism isn't real. You guys weren't submerged completely. You didn't do this format right. And you, you still have this today. And, you know, we probably will to the end of time, but it doesn't mean we sh- should stop working to solve these divisions and get this unity. That's what Paul wanted with the Corinthians. You know, and if he was right there as a guest tonight on the show, he'd be telling us the same thing. I can pretty much feel safe with that. Okay, that leads to the next problem. And this was a big one too. Because they were suing each other. And Paul really gets on their case with the lawsuits. Because they're going outside the community to go to pagan judges to decide court cases. And this is causing injury and harm to the community of believers. And Paul is upset about this. You know, the Corinthians were very proud. They believed that wisdom and knowledge equaled power. And that's true. But the wrong type of power is not good. And that's what Paul was getting at. Because he took a shot at their smugness. Because he warns them that you do not understand. You are Christians. And at the you are going to judge not just the earth, but angels because of what Christ has given you. So how can you people in Corinth go to pagan judges who do not believe in Christ, you who are to judge the earth and angels, and give these lawsuits, give them that power to decide for you Because they were proud, Paul takes a little shot and says, is there not one of you among you? You are so wise that can't settle this amongst yourselves. And he takes that dig at them. Because they were proud people. Just like we're proud today. 
And then he tells them, and this is very interesting, that it is better to undergo injury in this lawsuit and harm to yourself than to be kicked out of your inheritance in the kingdom. Wow. Because he tells them, fornicators, idolaters, sodomites, drunkards, liars, they're all excluded. And you're doing severe harm to your brother and sister with these lawsuits. And you will be out of the kingdom if you persist. Wow. That is a heavy-duty line right there. Better to suffer injury and harm than be disinherited out of the kingdom. And he tells them that. He wants to stress to them they have got to work within a community of the, the believers at that time to settle these disputes. Again, it's got to be a new way, a better way of dealing with our brothers and sisters than just taking them to a court. And he tells them, again, that it's better to be harmed and injured than to forfeit your eternal destiny. And that's something we can think about. Now, our court systems, and this is a very interesting thing, that many times because it's the law doesn't mean it's right. I think, you know, when we look at some of the, and I'm not picking on the Supreme Court here, but when you look back at some of the monumental decisions that the Supreme Court has enacted in the United States of America, it has not been for the benefit nor the good of the people of this country and for the lifeblood of the nation itself. When you make a law, it doesn't mean it's right. I am thinking, of course, to two big ones stand out to me. Of course, actually, let's throw three. Dred Scott, which if, if you are familiar with that, was the decision of the slave when he was basically, in a nutshell, to sum this up, considered property. And once he was considered property and did not have the rights of a human being under our Constitution, that horrendous decision could not help but pave the way for the Civil War. We look and see when prayer was thrown out of school, when that wasn't constitutional right, where we can't offend and force religion of a simple prayer in an institution, again, disastrous decision. Because it takes our eye off who has given this country everything it has and will have. And if we're intent on throwing him out, He's going to let us, as the Sinatra song says, do it our way. And the track record of doing it our way over all these centuries of human existence isn't too good. Not for the majority, by far. And then the decision in 73 with the abortion. And to make that a right, a legal right, 
is the law of the land, and that's what they decided. But again, it doesn't make it right. And the slope that happens is when you made that decision, when they made the decision that would be in cases of rape or endangering the mother's life, well, what happened? It led to a tremendous slippery slope where you'll have millions upon millions of millions of babies being killed. And this language is going to sound rough right now, but when you choose an abortion, and I, I like to kind of cut through the wording, the fancy wording. You know, we do that as human beings. Words are powerful. And we can change words, soften words, harden words to get what we want other people to believe. That's how powerful they are. And a lot of times, their power is in the strength that we don't even recognize that as humans, that we're being manipulated by words. When people choose to have an abortion, they are choosing to terminate a life, cut and dry, because that's what they're choosing. In the end result, stripping all the... Uh, gloss and sugarcoating when you choose to terminate that life in the womb it's just that because I think most of us if not all can agree that if left alone that develops into a human being what is in the womb it will develop into a human being so when the court made that the law of the land and people choose this it's the law, but it doesn't make it right. Because to me, simple man that I am, when you decide to do this, you are killing. You are ending what will be a life. And to me, I, so words like pro-choice, words like these, you can do this in sugarcoat. It doesn't change the fact for me. That killing is killing. When it's dead, it's dead. And again, the law of the land does not make it right. Because something's legal doesn't make it right. There's been legal laws passed to enable the powerful to manipulate, to get what they want. That is legal. And they can't be breached. But it doesn't make it right. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians. You've got to stop this because you're going to lose the kingdom. And you don't want in all your legality to lose the kingdom. And that was one of the reasons Christ had to be removed by the leaders of the day of his time. Because he was breaking down the legality. This legality that the works and those laws are more important and that's what's going to get you to your father. And Christ said, that's not it. You don't get it. You have to have laws and you have to have authority. But that doesn't become God itself. And Paul certainly talks about this in his letters to the Galatians and to the Philippians. When they want to go back, some of the Christian Jews, to the old way of the law, he tells you you're free in the spirit. Law is abolished now. You're free to live in the Spirit. That means living in Christ. And that's what 
he wants us to do. And that living in spirit is to know God's will for our lives and to be one with him in humility. And that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing for all of us. It's a tough thing for me to be truly uh, humble and have humility. Because especially we were taught from a very young age to be competitive, to succeed, to get and to have things, and to make our name for ourselves. And, you know, every time, and I can't remember, that we, if you do the liturgy hours, things like that, there's one of the Psalms in there talks about how no matter what a man, his uh, name he's made for himself in his life, or no matter what he accumulated, he's going to sleep with his fathers, the Psalm says. And his name's going to be history. And all his goods, he's not taking with him. <laughs> that's, you know, when, you, when we reflect on that, wow, that says it all. We're not taking any of the stuff we accumulate here. And let's hope we take some good stuff when we get to our particular judgment with Jesus and, and pray in his mercy he forgets all that baggage we, we cart there. And again, thank God for confession. So Paul warns him about the lawsuits because they're, they're causing further division. And he's also got a problem with the gifts of the Holy Spirit with the Corinthians. Because remember I had mentioned that in their uh, wisdom and knowledge, they realized that it was powerful and it gave them power. And when they started getting the gifts of the Spirit through the Holy Spirit, wow! did they become big and powerful and proud. Because now the gifts of the Spirit was becoming an end in itself and not a means to an end. And Paul really calls them to task here. Because he said the cardinal rule, the cardinal rule of the gifts of the Spirit is to build and edify the church, to build our members up, this body of Christ, to the head of the uh, body, which is Christ himself. The gifts are meant to do this. Not to be proud, not to be haughty, and not to lord it over the people, especially if they don't have a particular gift or a gift. And Paul really wants to bring that home, that unity again, because all these divisions, all the, the lawsuits, the the um, gifts of the Spirit, which are a a good thing. And this is used to divide and not come together. And he's got to worry about this because he knows that if this church in Corinth is divided, it cannot withstand the pressures from that secular culture at the time. It will cave. If it can't be strong within, united as the body of Christ, there is no way it's going to stand strong uh, up to the secular powers. So again, he tells them, you can't do this. Now, he, there's some gender confusion here too. Because, and uh, we'll get to this in a minute, but it seems that the women at that time had a particular uh, fondness for the tongues. And they would get up and they'd speak out and, and there'd again be turmoil. And Things were getting out of hand. There wasn't any type of maybe a protocol and, and a way to follow this. And it was just becoming a willy-nilly thing where anybody could do anything they wanted. And he, Paul was very concerned. And he, he tells them, I want you to have an interpreter tongues. 
If you're praying together, I want someone to have the gift, to pray for the gift, that there's got to be an interpreter that is going to interpret what the Holy Spirit is saying through you guys for the edification of the church. And that's where, and this gets, uh, we'll talk about this in some other programs, but Paul gets this tough knock that he was anti-woman because he wants their heads covered. And there was a reason for this because, again, things were getting out of control where there was, there was not a protocol. There, there was no fun. Think just people could get up, do whatever they wanted. Who knows where this was going? Was this a legitimate gift? Was this the Holy Spirit? Was this that lawless guy getting in the works, causing further division? So he tells them that you need, for the men, their heads can be uncovered. Because they were born in the, Adam, in the image of Adam, image of God, but because the image of God, he created Adam, his head was uncovered, your heads are going to be uncovered. And the women, he wants their heads covered because he said they were created with long hair. The women are created with long hair. And it can be an enticement because it's attractive to the men. We don't want things to, we don't want any type of any other confusion or any other type of distraction. So please, cover your heads, and let's get an interpreter, and let's get this working out, because it's a great gift, but we need to appreciate it for what it was, and we've got to be discerning that these gifts are leading us to further unity and not division. And again, we look here, and we can see the same things in prayer groups. Some charismatic prayer groups, they are awesome. They do so much for the church. Other people, I have nothing to do with those people. They're all crazy, all that mumbo-jumbo. And they're missing the gifts. And it's vice versa. The charismatic, well, we don't, we don't need all that reverence stuff. We're free in the spirit. God, you know, he just tells us to do whatever we want to do. <laughs> you know, and, and there it is. See, there's the division. It's, it's not... Either or. That's where we run into trouble as Christians a lot of time, I think, personal opinion. It's and, or, it's and and both. Both have great things to give as gifts, to enhance the body of believers, to edify the church. It's not about us. It's about us getting closer to God in a relationship. So uh, next week... Uh, We'll continue on with this, with the Corinthians and, and some of St. Paul. But I, I want you to see, because I want to touch on some of Paul's mysticism, because that's going to happen in Second Corinthians, because they uh, are going to challenge him that he's not a real apostle. And one of the reasons he doesn't have all these, these great visions and things like that, which we know is certainly not true. But we'll touch on that later. So tonight we want to just bring a point as we close the show that as much as things change, they are the same. And if we read scripture, we can see these things applying to our individual lives and to our community as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to really open ourselves up to that unity. Because when we're unified, we're strong, and we can accomplish anything. We can accomplish anything through the Holy Spirit. But if we're divided, we conquer. We, if we're divided, we can fall and fail. And with that, brothers and sisters, I wish you a blessed night and a blessed week. God bless you and your families. Good night. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. 
This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.